Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. And if you would, um, let's just bow our heads once more before we dive into God's word this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you um, that you have spoken to us in your word. In your word, you have given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. And Lord, um, on every uh, social media post and on every tabloid and every blog, there's tips and counsel for parents and children with parent issues. Um, And yet your word speaks to this speaks for our good and calls us to see Christ and the Father for all eternity, the way in which they loved us. So we pray, Lord, that we see relief. We also see uh, discipline in this text. We see encouragement in this text. But most importantly, Lord, we pray we see you as the good and loving Father who has set forth to save us in Jesus. We pray all this in your name. Amen. So pastors love to uh, speak in the extremes. And you've probably heard me say this is the most important. This is the shared experience we all have. This is the best verse. But very rarely do pastors actually have a text where they can say everyone has this in common. And today we encounter a text that says all of us have this in common. We all share this. And that's because, in case you haven't noticed, our text today deals with parents and kids and the relationships which develop, for better or for worse, around those experiences. All of us have had at some point parents. Some of us have had parents which harm us in ways that still affect us today. Abuse, abandonment, negligence are all part of our broken realities here on earth. They all remind us of why we need a savior, why there is, this world is not our forever home. And for others, we have parents who do genuinely care for us. And many of us have different experiences inside of that as to what that care looked like. For some of us, you were raised in a world where you just let kids roam the streets like outlaws in the wild, wild west. And then there are other kids that are growing up or have grown up either low-jacked or have helicopter parents. And it seems that each make fun of each other, but it could be perhaps, let's, in, let's just think that maybe one is a response to, I don't know, growing up unsupervised in a refinery or something like that would maybe make us more cautious about our kids um, growing up. And so we all have these different experiences of our parents And in some way, we are all shaped by the relationships we have with our parents, for better or for worse. And in this way, today's sermon is not just for parents, and it's not just for children in their parents' home. Instead, we're going to see how the relationships we had with our parents, and the relationships parents have with their kids, is actually a glimpse into how you might think about God for better or for worse. That is the things that make it helpful and perhaps things that you say are hurtful. And see, the beauty of having a God who is Trinity, that's a God who is three, one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, is that God has always and eternally been a father to the Son. And the Son has always and eternally been the Son begotten of the Father, which means that when God created in Genesis 1, and God made Adam and Eve capable of becoming parents, it wasn't a neat similarity. It was intended that every occurrence 
of parents and children in this world was to image, reflect, and imitate an experience the Father had with the Son for all eternity past. But what's even more wonderful is not just that Christians in God's word get a glimpse into eternity past and get a taste of what eternity future will look like with God as our Father, we get more than just this clinical description. It's actually through the work of Christ the Son taking away our sins that we actually get brought back into the family of God. We don't only observe it as, a, as, a, as an observer. We actually get invited into it by faith in Jesus Christ as an adopted child of God. And so to talk about parenting from a Christian perspective is to begin by reflecting on how God loves us in Jesus Christ. It's to consider how God, the first and forever parent, parents broken, rebellious sinners by calling us to faith in Jesus Christ. You see, the truth is we all have needs in parenting or thinking about parenting or in how to deal with our parents, and there are books by the billions. And yet, here's hope for the Christian that it's actually in looking at how God has loved you through Jesus Christ that you have the seedbed of all wisdom to know how to care for your kids and how to untangle perhaps broken relationships with your own parents. And while each of us have been shaped by our earthly parents, our salvation in Jesus Christ reminds us that we can be reshaped and renewed by our relationship with our eternal Father so as Solomon is talking today as this metaphorical father to us, as, us the students, as metaphorical children on the brink of adulthood, he's actually unveiling to us the heart of the wise parent for his child and how the child should view the heart of the parent. And he's going to make a plea to us as children to understand the deep love that is behind all of the experiences you should have with a good parent, a wise parent, a loving parent, a joyful parent. Behind our passage today is not only words for human parents and children, but the heart of our heavenly father towards us as his children. While shaping our own parenting, Solomon wants us to see God's great heart for his people, for those who come to him through Jesus Christ. And in light of this, what we're going to see today, our big picture is this, is that God's heart for us as his children shapes our response to him. That's actually where this proverb is going to end. But it also shapes our hearts towards our children. There's both a theological and a practical application inside of this text, and it's hard to divorce the two. And here's what we're going to see. We're going to see this in three ways. In Proverbs 23, if you haven't opened your Bible, you could do so now. Um, first, in verses 13 through 18, we are going to see what it looks like to be parenting with the end in mind. Then in verses 19 through 25, we're going to see what it looks like to be parenting for the greater joy. And then lastly, in verses 26 and 28, we're going to see what it looks like to be parenting for the heart. Parenting with the end in mind, parenting for the greater joy, and parenting for the heart. Now, we returned in Proverbs 23 to kind of this metaphor of Solomon speaking as a father to us as children. It's something as we've been expositing Proverbs, we haven't really seen since Proverbs 9 when the prologue ended. And how Proverbs 
is used or was used in the days of Solomon and following is it was used as this training manual for young adults who are about to leave the home of the parent. For those who are on the brink of adulthood, graduating, going off to college, entering into the workforce and leaving behind the safety of the parent's home and affection. And in light of this transitionary stage, Solomon is going to open by speaking to his son in a way that looks forward and also looks at the immediate. He's going to begin by equipping his son for the day when he himself might be a parent and how he should treat his kids. But then he's going to call him to look out right now in light of what he experienced in the father's home and have that wisdom shape his present reality. And as Solomon encourages us to look forward and to look into our immediate choices, what we actually see, and maybe you heard it when it was read earlier, is we see two bookends of hope at the end of each of these perspectives. Let's see if you can find these bookends as we read verses 13 through 18. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from shale, which is the Hebrew word for, for the grave. My son, if your heart is wise, my heart too will be glad. My inmost being will exult when your lips speak what is right. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. So here we see instructions for future parents and pleas for current children. And bookending each of these things is this longing for hope. And this is our first point today. This is where we see parenting with the end in mind. Sarah and I are doing pre-marriage counseling with a young couple. And God in his providence has equipped this couple with a circumstance in their life where they are beginning to process the beginning of their marriage uniquely in light of the end. And that's because this future bride was a caretaker for an elderly Christian couple. And as her and her boyfriend and now fiance began to date, he also was roped into this relationship, which became much more than caregiving. They fell in love with this older couple and they saw how they followed Jesus through a year where there were health scares and pandemic fears and hospitalizations and a unique reality of this older couple that the next stage in life is death. And that's what they've been sitting under. And what this has led them, we love pre-marriage counseling, but this has been unique. And I think Sarah could speak to this too. Where as we're beginning to talk about their goals in marriage, they have a unique picture of what it looks like 60 years from now. They see what it's like to desire more than anything to help each other follow Jesus in sickness and in health. They see what it's like to love people who are dictating how your life is lived because of the state of their health. They know what it's like to have fear of imminent death and loss permeate the marriage. And they look at all that and where they are and a lot of all of the excitement that's going to come for them in the next months, all of the planning, all of the fanfare, and the wedding itself, what they look at is they look at that couple and they say, that's where I want to be. That's the long game. That's what it looks like to get married with the end in mind. And Solomon here is speaking to us as it relates to our future children or our spiritual children. And he says, this is how you should approach 
parenting with the end in mind. Now, most parents have an end in mind for their children. Throughout history, there are many kids who are born with an itinerary for their life placed into their hand at birth. We have ideas of what we want our kids to be and what we want them to achieve, and it's good and loving parents who do this. We want to see our children be successful. We want to see them do well in sports, in career, and in relationship. But Solomon here wants both parents and kids to think bigger than that. He is after the eternal hope of the child. In speaking to the parents in verse 14, he says that you should be concerned about saving their soul disciplining your child in hopes that you might save their spiritual reality. And then in speaking to the child and calling him to wisdom and to walk in the fear of the Lord, he does so saying that surely, you can hear this pleading voice of the father, surely in this way, surely in this God, surely in this path, there's a future and your hope will not be cut off. So why should we care in a world that always wants to tell us how to unwrap parent issues and how to parent our kids? Why should we care what God says about parenting? Because we care about the eternal end of our children. We care about them for the long term, through the lens of eternity. One early Christian uh, theologian reflected on his childhood, and he remembered how his father, who was powerful and intellectual, gave him every opportunity to succeed in the world. Whether it was internships, whether it was relationships, whether it was wealth, sports camps, whatever it was, all the doors were open to him to succeed. And yet as he looked back at his childhood, the one thing he bemoaned was that despite all of the opportunities his father opened for him, his father did not call him to fear the Lord all the day. He said, I would have thrown all of that away if only to have a parent who loved me with eternity in mind. Sarah and I have done a dangerous thing at times, and that is we've asked our kids, and the two that answer are sitting right there, we've said, what do you think mommy and daddy want from you most? What do we want to happen in your life? Now, I'm not gonna give the answer to any of those because I think this is a good and absolutely terrifying experience to have with your own kids, to go home and ask them, What is their reality like in your home? If they could say the way in which you love them, the things you buy for them, the way you pray for them, what your hope would be for their life, how would they answer it? Here's the wonderful good news. They might answer terribly, and there's still hope. Because as we encounter weaknesses, that's what the gospel is intended to do. It's called to call us to Christ's strength for us. And Solomon wants us to parent kids in light of their eternal souls because this is how God parented us us in Jesus Christ. God did not sit back and watch humanity fall into sin and then only do what was easy and most expedient for himself. He did what was costly. He set his son to die for our sins. He maintained a covenant which we broke time and time again, and he endured all of those lapses for the love he had for us in Jesus Christ. And instead, it's through the costly work of Jesus on the cross, through the ongoing labor, Paul says, of the Holy Spirit in our bodies, that the Father promises that everything you encounter in your life as a follower of Jesus, things that are happy and things that are hurtful, that all of those are meant by the hand of the Father to conform you more and more into Jesus for the rest of eternity. Look at how Paul says this in Romans chapter 8. 
says this in verses 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We know that verse. We like that verse. But have you ever thought, what is the good that God is conforming you to in all things? What is the good that your father wants for you? We see that in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so here we see that God's good for us is that in everything we encounter, he is shaping us more and more into who we will be for all eternity when God completes his work in us. Consider another analogy Paul uses, not of parenting, but of marriage. And this in Ephesians chapter 5, where he says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, that is to change, that is to make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Just as Jesus, the true bridegroom, is preparing the church for eternity, so too is the Father, the conforming us more and more into what we will be like in glory. And here is a wonderful truth for you. And that is in a world where perhaps you, but certainly you have seen it in the lives of others, have encountered parents who have given up on their children. Here is the father who will not give up. Here is the father who through the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit in those he has called to himself will not let you go, but will bring to completion all that he has begun in you in Jesus Christ, who will labor in you through his Holy Spirit and through his church to grow you in light of the end, to present you holy and without blemish. I hurt my back this week doing something dumb while working out. And this week I've had these, these terrible pictures which, that I work out might be news to you guys. Um, but these terrible like mind thoughts that like I'm never going to be able to hit these benchmarks in working out again. How many of us pursue holiness like that? And we say, man, I'll never get there. But here is the hope of life with this father. You will get there. God will grow you. And it might be in glory, but take heart that God is loving you for eternity that he's not done with you now. And one day you get that full pleasure because of what Jesus has done. That's what it looks like to be parented in light of eternity. So how do you do that? We see how God does it to us. And this is where I love what Solomon does here. He's putting as bookends here this hope for the soul of this child, this future that will not be cut off. What does it look like for you to parent your kids in light of eternity? Well, Solomon points us to what seems most distasteful in the immediate discipline. The thing that in the moment, no one ever wants to do. He says, this is what it looks like. And if there's one perspective that has changed in my life as I've grown from being a child to a parent, there's some other steps in between, um, a child to the parent, is that you begin to think that your parents discipline you because it's often the most expedient and easy thing to just get you to fall in line. But I've realized that that's furthest from the truth. What's even further is that it's easy to have four kids in your house a week you're preparing to preach on parenting. (laughs) 
This is a week where God provoked all the things in our home. Last night, it was just anarchy in our house. And I was just like, Sarah, if only someone would tell us what to do here. As I spent a week in God's word, chastising my heart on this. Because the truth is, biblical discipline, that is discipline that has the end of the child in mind and not the vindication of the parent, is discipline that is often most costly to your time. It's often what poses the biggest threat and external challenge to your relationship with that child. Which means that true, biblical, loving, God-like discipline is impossible without eternity in mind. And the Bible assumes that you're going to run into this tension. And that's why Solomon says, when it comes to disciplining your child, you might feel like as you go into that room, somebody's going to die. <laughs> that kid might think it's going to be them. You might think it's going to be you. All you know is that only one person's coming out. And he's just saying, he's saying, I know you're going to feel it. He's like, but I promise the opposite is true. This will not lead to death. This will save souls. And there's two realities behind this. First, he's talking simply about sheol, which is the Hebrew word for the grave, which means that disciplining your child might be this common grace to save your kids from doing foolish and dangerous things that might cause them to die early in their foolishness, to do things that are dumb. And a parent says, child, this is not safe for you. Listen to me and live. But there's also a spiritual level here because he's not simply talking about physical death. He mentions the grave, but he says it saves their soul. The hope is not only that discipline extends the physical life of the child, but that it plays a role in saving the eternal life of the child. Discipline is not meant to be a means of shaping the child into who you want them to be. Discipline is the means of shaping the child into who God wants them to be. And that cuts out a whole range of what I would discipline for. (laughs) I know I would like my desire for my kids to be what God desires for me. But often, I just want silent, still, non-puking children. (laughs) Now, I want to say this. There are, in this room, perhaps, maybe watching online, there are parents who perhaps had children who died early in sin. There are parents who have kids that have walked away from the gospel or maybe you got saved later in life and you look back and see your whole home was void of the gospel. And that is a hard reality. But behind this text is the promise that it's never too late to trust God with your kids. That God gives parents to children and they play an immensely influential role which you ought to take seriously And yet all of these kids are kids on loan. They are God's children. And your mistakes are not bigger than God's plan. And if you wrestle with that, that's a whole other sermon in and of itself. Please talk to me, talk to one of the other elders, talk to your community group leaders, because there is hope in here, hope for you that you find by seeing how God the Father loves you and how he's caring for you in everything for your good. But Solomon here turns back to discipline and he speaks of discipline with a rod. And I know that spankings, I think in every generation uh, recently has been kind of this taboo issue of, you know, what do you do with spankings? And that's partly because of how our sinful hearts 
are prone to abuse things that God gives us for the good of the child, and we use it for the good of ourselves. We discipline out of anger. We discipline out of haste. We discipline to make a point that's not the gospel. And so that's wrong. That is abusive. That has no place in God's word or in God's church. And my goal here isn't to tell you if whether you should discipline with a rod or a wisdom worker. I heard some people have wisdom workers. They're like these little rubber sticks. Or your hand or anything. But what we see here is that Solomon intends discipline of the child to cause the child pain. Not enduring pain, not harmful pain, but corrective pain. And as cringy as this seems in our world, I want us to understand why this is important if we love our children. This is important to understand because it's often easy for me to parent with only my displeasure. God has blessed me with uh, my, the Valine side of my family produces like only boy children. We had a boy first and we said, here we go, another family full of boys and then girl, girl, girl. And so my family is full of women and I can parent and discipline well by simply expressing my displeasure. By saying, you should not have done that. You are disobeying. I'm disappointed in you. And the truth is, most of my daughters will just break down and cry when I do that. It seems effective. And yet, if we only parent with discipline, this has a profound effect on how they view you and also, more importantly, how they're going to view God. It is true that God is displeased with your sin. It does not cause him delight. In the prophets, he voices his displeasure clearly. Jesus voices his displeasure towards sin in the gospels. You will be displeased with your children's sin. My children never come to me in sin and I say, this is just great. It's displeasing. But if all we discipline with is our displeasure, we're ultimately showing our parents that their greatest problem in life is managing the emotions of their parents that it doesn't matter what is done. It only matters how your parent responds. And that begins to influence how we view God. It means we begin to think that God's emotion towards us or our emotions, our parents' emotion towards their kids are generally arbitrary. The experience of the child in that home is that I don't necessarily know what's wrong, but I know I don't want to make my parents mad. <laughs> I know I don't want to encounter their displeasure. And so it becomes this balancing game of either removing altogether yourself from that so as not to experience displeasure, or you whitewash things and you get disciplined. You just say, my parents are going to be upset and that's okay. But God disciplines us and parents should discipline their kids, not only because it is displeasing to the parent, but because it is dangerous to the child. When we discipline in a way that causes pain and disrupts normal life, it reminds your children that sin is not something trivial. That sin is not simply the displeasure of the parent. Sin has a desire for you. Sin wants to kill you. It wants to harm you. It wants to hurt you. And the more our children experience that, they realize their greatest enemy is not the response of the parent or how God views them. Their greatest enemy is the result of the displeasure, which is that you are going to die. That left unchecked, this will kill you. That sin is the enemy that wars against your soul. And it is better than to have a loving and nurturing parent discipline you in the home so that you are not harmed eternally by sin in life.
And so what we see in this text is a call for our discipline to show our children the dangers of sin. And there's room for grace. Yes, there should be grace. But there's also a sober reminder to parents that discipline is meant to show them that sin is dangerous because you love them and you want them to no longer pursue it. But here we also see that sin not only, or the discipline is not only punishing, but we also see that a biblical form of discipline not only punishes what is disobedient, but also praises what is obedient. And, and look at this. We see this in verses 15 through 18. My son, if your heart is wise, my heart too will be glad. My innermost being will exult when your lips speak what is right. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. If we want to parent our children in light of eternity, we want them to know where the boundaries of pain are. In here is safe, out there is harmful. And yet we also want them to know where the joy is. And here Solomon exults, he delights, he rejoices in the obedience of his children. He wants them not to envy, not to desire sinners, but instead to have this desire, this affection, this fear of the Lord. To realize that they can rely on God and know that their hope will not be cut off. That there is a future worth getting excited about. What does this look like for you as a parent or as a church member? to actually come alongside those that are obeying and to rejoice in them, to exult with them, to celebrate the joy of following Jesus well. One thing we do as parents, and we look really silly doing it, is from a young age, we, we celebrate our children's obedience, which means even when my one and a half year old, I ask her to not, I don't know, stick a fork in an outlet or something that she likes to do. And she, she chooses, conflicted, to drop it and to walk away. Sarah and I, we go, yay, obedience! It seems really silly to do that in a room full of adults, but that's what we do because I want that to be her experience in the church because that is her experience with God when she obeys. God is pleased. God rejoices when people choose to follow him and say no to sin. If you want children to have a bright future, our discipline reminds them of the dangers of what would rob their joy and it also comes alongside them for their joy. Look at what Proverbs 14, 18 through 19 says about this path. The path of righteousness is like the light of dawn which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The future's bright. The way of wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. In the midst of discipline, a child should not only know the danger of sin, they should also know the promise of a future, of repentance, of a restoration of relationship, and a hope that in the future they might avoid that pain again. So an application for us is that as a church, do we create a culture of this? We will have and have cases of formal church discipline in our body. But do we have cases of informal discipline? We're like athletes cheering on that one guy, lifting more than he should lift so that he hurts his back. Do we have a culture of cheering what is good in hopes of producing endurance, celebration, and fellowship over obedience? Because this is actually what discipline is meant to produce, a renewed strength for obedience. Look at how the author of Hebrews speaks of this in Hebrews chapter 11. 
or chapter 12, excuse me, verses 11 through 13. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it leads or it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. At the heart of all of God's parenting is the promise of a future, the hope of healing, and a real joy. And this is where Solomon turns next. This is where we see parenting for the greater joy. Read with me a tale of two hearts in Proverbs 23, 19 through 25. Hear my son and be wise. Direct your heart in the way. Be not among the drunkards or among the gluttonous eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty and slumber will clothe them with rags. Listen to your father who gave you life. Do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy truth do not sell it. Buy wisdom, instruction, and understanding. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice, and he who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. So here we see the return of a theme we've seen in Proverbs, and that's the theme of the two paths or the two ways. And Solomon shows this, this as he's sitting down with his son who's ready to go out into the world and he says, be wise, stick to this path, be intentional. Do not be drawn from it because there will be those who call you to other paths. And we see those two paths represented by two encouragers. There's the path of the drunkard and the glutton and the path of mom and dad. And Solomon calls us twice to listen to him, to heed this warning so that you might have joy. And this warning builds off what just happened because it doesn't make sense if we're only driven by what happens in the short term. If we fail to live without eternity in mind, we can never apply this text because to partner with the glutton and the drunkard is to get exactly what you want right now. The drunkard has his fill of wine and the glutton of meat They are not controlled by the Holy Spirit, but they're controlled by what they consume. And we'll talk more about this next week. And this sense of immediacy with the glutton and the drunkard is contrasted with the mother and father who are calling you to truth, to buy it, to not sell it, to continue in wisdom and insight. And what's the contrast here? The contrast is that the table of the glutton and the drunkard is free but to buy wisdom and to walk in the path of the parent comes at a cost that is often costly, that it doesn't seem to be the most immediate rewarding path. You buy it and you don't sell it. In the moment, to believe the truth of what the father is teaching is costly and seems to provide no immediate gain. And let's remember here that what the father is calling us to in the fear of the Lord, when we see that phrase, it's this reverent reliance upon God. And so Solomon's intent in this day in the Old Testament for those who feared the Lord was to look at all of the things that were on the outside of Israel, all of the idols, all of the sexual practices, all of the cultural ways, and to look at what God gave them in the law and to realize that God has a promise for their future, that God knows what's best for them and he has made a covenant to keep them and to love them and to seek their well-being. For us, this side of the cross, to fear the Lord is to see that 
Israel couldn't keep the law and you can't keep the law, but praise God, Jesus has kept the law for us. Jesus brings all of the benefits of the promise of God into our lives through faith in him. In the face of what is immediate and tangible, Solomon calls us as children to delight in what is often invisible and immaterial in the gospel. So I don't know if you guys remember the uh, court system that everyone used to judge their parents, and that was the lunchroom table when you're in school. So everyone gets there and you pull out your lunch boxes, and even then you're seeing who has a cool Power Ranger lunch box and who has a brown bag lunch, automatic parent points and parent deductions. And then you open it up and you begin to see what everyone has. And you begin to say, these are the good parents. You open up your bag and you see an apple and a sandwich, and the guy across the street from you has cool ranch Doritos and pudding cups. And many of us view not only our parents, but God this way that we got stuck with the lesser lunch. That if only we had a parent like the world who filled us with all the goodies and all the sugars and all the good tasting things, we might even think that does this parent even love us? Does God actually even care about my joy? For many of us, even in reading passages like this as parents, we think that God is after our holiness and not our happiness. But in this text, Solomon wants us to see that God cares about joy far more than the world because God knows where joy is and the world has no clue. In fact, his parenting of us and our parenting of our kids is an invitation into the world's greatest joy. Solomon's plea to the son is that instead of looking at what is offered by the glutton and the drunkard, that we would consider the parents who gave you life. To follow the consumption and immediate joy of the world is to ultimately, we see this here, it finds yourself in poverty, And it finds those who pursue that lifestyle clothing themselves with rags. What's the point? They can't even give clothes to themselves. What do you think they will ever provide you? And in contrast to that are the mom and dad who give life, who lavish you in love. The end of fellowship with the world is rags, but the end of fellowship in the wisdom of the Lord is joy and celebration. Look again at verses 24 and 25. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. Why do we want to parent our kids with eternity in mind? Why do we want them to see the wisdom of the gospel? Because we want them to share in our joy. John says, I have no greater joy than knowing my children are walking with the Lord. We want them to be clothed not in the rags of the world, but in the riches of the grace of Jesus Christ. And if you're a follower of Jesus, do you believe that in all God calls you to believe, in every act of obedience he calls you to submit to, in every principle of wisdom he calls you to consider that he is after your eternal and abiding joy. Not a different joy, not a lesser joy, not a lower case joy, the only joy, the only thing which satisfies not only in the moment, but forever. And it is that joy he shares in the Trinity, in the perfect union of the Godhead that he wants to invite you into. That is what is held out for those who come to the Father through the Son. 
In John 17, Jesus is showing us the fun land that is knowing the Father like the Son knows the Father. He's writing the world's most wonderful love letter, and then he invites us into it. But then he begins to pray for his disciples, and he prays and says, there will be times when my disciples will encounter hatred from the world. They will look at their bag, and they will see their Twinkie-eating neighbor, and they will be scorned for how they live. But Jesus says, hold on to the joy by fighting for the truth. Look at how he prays in John chapter 17. Verses 13 through 17. But now I am coming to you, that's Jesus going to the Father, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. So there's those two paths. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus is calling you to trust him because he has something better for you, something better than rags, something better than riches. He has the relational joy of the son. He has an eternity with the father, which comforts us when we feel the pull of the world. Therefore, we parent our children for their joy by showing them the joy there is in Jesus Christ. And this applies to all of us, parent, kid, no kid, single, Whatever. When you look at these two paths, what is it that you are modeling to the youths around you that satisfies the most? What is it you share with them? What is it you talk about with them? Does it invite them into the promise of satisfaction at the table of the world, or does it invite them into the joy of the Father through the Son? And this idea of parenting with the end in mind and parenting for joy shared in the family leads Solomon to his conclusion that there's actually an action he wants from the son. And it's here we see the last point that is parenting for the heart. Read with me Proverbs 23, 26 through 28. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. For a prostitute is a deep pit and an adulteress is a narrow well. She lies in wait like a robber and increases the traitors among mankind. So in this text, we have the father pleading with the son who's on his way out of the house that he would actually look back and understand all of his experiences in the home of the father and would understand the father's heart for him that he loves him in light of eternity, that he wants his joy. And all of this culminates, why does the father want the son to know his heart? So at the end, the son might take his heart and give it to the father and trust the father with the whole of his hopes and his affections. And here the battle lines have been drawn. On one side is the prostitute and the adulteress the one who plays with the heart, but as we see, only ends up robbing, deceiving, and destroying those who are foolish enough to give. And then on the other side is the father asking for the son's heart. 
As the Father, he knows the world wants the heart of all of us. He knows that when you leave this place and even in your place, in this place, buzzing on your phone, in your pocket, the world is after your heart. On every corner, it desires your hope. It pleads for it, it promises it, but it deceives and it destroys. But here Solomon says, son, trust me with your heart. Resist the temptation of the world and hold fast to all I have taught you. Trust that I love you more than the world loves you. Our parenting should be aimed at the heart of our children. It is an invitation to invite them to trust you with their hearts, their affection, their joy, and their future. We're not just after behavior. We're after their heart. And part of the way you're called to show them how safe and good it is to give you their, to give you their heart is by calling them to observe your ways. That's what we see in verse 25. Let your eyes observe my ways. And there's an intentional parallel here because the prostitute preys on the eyes. She wants to be seen as attractive, as seductive, so that you are invited in. And what does dad call you to? He's not pointing to his dad bod. (laughs) He's pointing to how he lives. He says, look at my life, son. Is it attractive to you? Look at my hope. Look at my love for Jesus. Look at my love for my wife. Look at the way I love your siblings. Look at my devotional life. Look at my prayer time. Look at my service in the church. Look at my work. Look at my hobbies. Look at my wallet. Look at it all. Do you desire it? Do you see the joy of the gospel in your life? When you parent your children, what is ultimately on display, I want to say this again, when you parent your children, what is ultimately on display is your own relationship with your heavenly father. Do they see that relationship as joyful? Do they see you trusting God with your heart? Do they see you delighting in his word? And here's the bittersweet reality of life as not the heavenly father, is that our children might trust us with their heart and we might hurt them. We might cause harm to them because we are not the heavenly father. If anyone leaves here thinking that this is a legalistic message of how you need to be the perfect parent, you've misinterpreted all of this. You are not the perfect parent and you won't ever be. And it's in that moment actually where your parenting becomes most effective because you take the brokenness which our limitations sometimes create and you bring it into the throne room of the heavenly father and you say, here is a dad who doesn't make these mistakes. Here is a parent who does not get overly frustrated in sin. Here is the one who will never fail you. Here is the one who is more capable to create you into the image of Jesus than I will ever be. Do you trust this father? When you think of your own lives, to whom are you giving your heart? Before any of us apply this as a parent or a grandparent or as, a, or as anyone else, a church member, you must apply this text as a child. You must soberly assess whether the God who gave you life through Jesus Christ is worthy of having your heart in obedience. 
of worthy in the hard acts of discipline of a child, if that's your reality. Worthy in the hard acts of saying no to lust and temptation. Worthy of getting up from a table with a glutton, no matter how awkward it might be, and saying, I trust you so that my future might not be cut off. Will you pursue the fear of the Lord and find that in the crucible of parenting, in the marketplace of desire, and in the brokenness of a world, there is a future. A future with the Father on account of the Son. And in that joy, will you give your heart to him and give his heart to others? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you show yourself in our heart as a father worthy of it. It sounds so silly that we should say, prove you, heavenly, eternal father, prove to us that you are a God safe for our hopes. And yet you have done that. You have condescended in Jesus Christ. He has humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant so that we might not only see the great father, but that we might be saved by him, that we might savor him and know him. And Lord, as a result, everything we do in terms of how we care for our future children and our present children, how we view and forgive our parents today. Everything is different because you have reorganized our hearts through the Father who is truly wise, a Father who not even Solomon could be. So Lord, we pray that our lives, our homes, our conversations are observably different we do pray, Lord, specifically for the parents in our church. As a parent myself, there are times where I feel overwhelmed. I don't know what to do. I feel that helping my kids follow Jesus is costly, even considering that following Jesus myself is costly. But I pray you create in us a community who wants to help each other look at how Jesus has loved us and to love our kids in the same way. We pray specifically for those, Lord, with... with uh, children, both in the home and out of the home, who are not walking with Jesus. Lord, we pray that right now that we might be resolved to share with them the hope of the true Heavenly Father, and that as they hear the gospel and as the gospel is prayed over them, that we can trust you with our children. Lord, we pray all of this knowing that the road of righteousness gets brighter every day. There is hope. There is a way forward. And there is a father who loves us because of his son. We pray this in your name. Amen.